Welcome to the Democracy Dispatch podcast. I'm Justin Marsh, political director at Vermont Conservation Voters. This is your weekly scoop on legislative action as we work to push forward environmental policies for Vermont. Each Monday, we will take a look back at the week prior, preview the week ahead, and speak with legislators and advocates on topics affecting our air, water, open space, and quality of life. On today's episode, we have a conversation with Representative Julia Andrews of Westford about work in the Committee on Ways and Means and a bill that would raise revenue through the taxation of Vermonters with the highest of incomes. Later, I chat with Marcy Gallagher of VPIRG about Vermont's beverage container law, known more commonly as the Bottle Bill. We unpack the history of the 50-year-old law, its importance, and the attempts and complexities surrounding modernizing it for today's economy and consumer trends. But first, I want to bring Lauren Hurl, Executive Director of Vermont Conservation Voters, into the fold for our session shakedown segment, where we recap the last week in the State House and give a preview of what's in store. All right. Hello, Lauren. Uh, we had a, a good week in the House and Senate. Um, we had a, a good vote out of committee for the Renewable Energy Standard. What is the, the path from here for that bill? Yeah, so House Environment and Energy overwhelmingly passed that through. And, um, you know, it really does take meaningful steps to, you know, require 100% renewable energy on a shorter timeline. Um, So we're getting one of the most ambitious clean energy bills in the country, which is exciting. I think one of the outstanding issues we continue to look into is how are we making this accessible to everyone as they transition away from a kind of group net metering program. So that's been kind of the sticking point. Um, So we'll keep people posted on how that conversation evolves. But the bill heads to the House Ways and Means and Appropriations Committees. There's kind of small things that they're looking at in the bill. So that we're hoping could be on the House floor for a full vote um, as soon as uh, next week or the week after. Amazing. And the uh, Make Big Oil Pay, the Climate Superfund Act, saw its first testimony. VNRC's John Groveman was one on the list. What else uh, is going on there? Yeah, the committee you know, heard from some national experts as well as local experts, really mostly digging into what is the legal framework, you know, as our Judiciary Committee for establishing a climate super fund, what kind of precedence and law is that um, kind of approach built on where you hold polluters accountable. Uh, So it was just the initial conversation around that. So we're hoping testimony will continue soon um, as they dig into that bill. Excellent. And the Climate Resilience Bill, S-213, is still in the Senate. Uh, When can we expect that to move out of its committee and where will it go next? That bill, we are also anticipating a vote uh, as soon as this week, we're hoping. Uh, There's been a lot of work done to kind of shore up the provisions around dams, rivers, and wetlands. Um, That bill will head to one or both of the money committees next. Um, There is funding, which is an essential part because we do need some more um, staff and programmatic funding to make these these new initiatives work. So that's a critical part. So we know for sure it's going to go to the appropriations committee and and might stop off in one or two others um, on the way for some small provisions. And more work on housing and the land use policies are underway in several different committees. Senate Economic Development was working on it all week. What do you know there? 
Yeah, once again, um, you know, of course, housing being a really hot topic. Um, so a couple Senate committees and House committees were looking at various pieces of housing and land use regulations. The governor held a press conference this week kind of reiterating his call for, um, you know, housing forward policies. And and so we're continuing to just kind of work with each of the committees that are looking at it from slightly different angles and bring that smart growth um, perspective to encouraging housing in good locations as we also protect uh, protect our critical natural resources. So we're kind of waiting to see um, as we're recording this, haven't yet seen a vote through any of those committees, uh, a lot of markup and work going on to get you know pen to paper for uh, what these ideas can look like. And you spoke with Representative Julia Andrews for the deep dive segment. Uh, frame up that conversation for us. Yeah, Representative Andrews is on the House Ways and Means Committee, which is the committee that focuses on raising money for the state. And we talked about, you know, the perennial tension of not having enough resources to make the kinds of investments that we know can save the state money over the long term and help people with so many critical needs right now. And so they've been looking in particular at a couple um, approaches for raising money from the wealthiest few Vermonters. And so those conversations are getting going. There's a couple different ways that uh, she describes to us that they're considering doing that. Um, and that committee has also been looking at um, climate resilience funding and how we're making sure that we're pulling down as much federal money as possible um, through structures like a green bank or, or something in that vein. So let's go hear that conversation now. I am delighted to be sitting here today with Representative Julia Andrews from Westford and also represents a portion of Milton. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yes, our pleasure. And uh, Representative Andrews sits on the Ways and Means Committee. So we've got two big money committees. One raises money, that's the Ways and Means Committee, and one spends money, which is the Appropriations Committee. So Representative Andrews has been spending a lot of time thinking about how do we raise money, how do we do it in fair ways that can really benefit Vermonters and be investing in critical issues. Um, One we've been talking about a lot is flood response and resilience. And I know you all have already taken some quick action to help some of our communities with flood response. Do you want to tell us quickly about that? Yeah. So um, one of the things that we've done already in our committee is um, look at communities that were impacted by the flood, they have a lot of properties that are off the grand list because they're destroyed and people go through a process called tax abatement. And once they're abated, that means that person is not going to pay the property tax, but the town is still on the hook to fund the ed fund. And so what we did is for like a community like, you know, Johnson or Barry that has numerous properties in this um, situation is to say, we're not going to make you pay your your share. We appreciate you are under too much duress to do that. So like that's something we felt really was important to make sure that we um, responded well to the communities that really needed us at this time. That's great. And, you know, living here in Montpelier that was impacted and yes. this it's, it's so important and appreciated. Um, so that's been moving quickly. 
Um, there's been ongoing conversations in your committee looking at how do we fund resilience for the long term. So that's just kind of just getting started. So we might do a future session, <laughs> deep dive on that. Great. Um, and another issue that you all have been digging into is looking at how do we raise additional revenue knowing that we have urgent needs that are not being met currently and how do we do that in a really progressive way that is asking those with the most resources to contribute a little bit more? So can you tell us about what some of those proposals are that you all have started talking about? Yes. But before I dive in, I definitely want to talk a little bit about the word progressivity. Yeah. Super important. Uh, Vermont nationally ranks as one of the most progressive tax systems in the country. And we feel really proud of that because it protects people who can't pay from have be putting them in an uncomfortable position of being forced to pay more than their fair share and tries to put the burden on people who can pay their fair share. And so no matter even though we are one of the more progressive states in the country, if you look at the little chart of like how that tax curve goes, when you get to the highest earners, they pay a smaller portion of their you know, their income into taxes than someone who's in the middle. So that's something that we're considering fixing this time in, in this session. And there's two proposals on the table for that. The first one would be if and if you make more than five hundred thousand dollars a year, any incremental revenue or in, income that you have above that would have a surcharge of three percent of your revenue. Or I keep saying revenue because I'm so used to talking about property <laughs> taxes. <in> the- <laughs> Sorry. Um, of your income would be taxed. So if you make $510,000, just that $10,000 would have the 3% surcharge. Um, And then the second one is a more complicated mechanism, but what it does is it would look at someone who has more than $10 million in assets and tax them on their full um, portfolio of assets. And there's a lot of complicated mechanisms in there, and there's some things that get to opt out of that calculation. But ultimately, what we think about is that um, people that are in that kind of wealth category do not pay income taxes. They are not; they don't have a W two, right? So they are not paying, as you sort of said, their fair share into you know all the services and things that we provide as a government. So. We think it's important to sort of shift that conversation and make sure that the very, very wealthiest people in our state are helping to support all of the things that we do as a state. Well, I know we've worked for so many years and time after time, it's ah, it's such such an important issue, but we don't have the resources to do it. So really, uh, really happy that the conversation is happening. And I know those are big issues and it gets really complicated once you start figuring out how to actually do yep. these things. <laughs> So uh, we'll be following it closely and see how those conversations evolve. And so grateful that you and your committee are doing that work. And um, we're looking forward to coming up to Milton for a community event to talk with you on March 2nd. So uh, look out for details on that. And any last thoughts before I let you go? I do think it's just when we were talking about these wealth tax proposals, that revenue that would be generated if those bills pass has not been... Uh, designated to any specific thing. We know that there are a lot of competing needs in the state. So that's going to take a lot more consideration and thoughtful conversation to decide where those monies go. But I just want to be clear about that so that no one's like, it's, you know, have an expectation that doesn't come to fruition. Yeah, no, that's really, that's critically important. And there's so many 
needs out there right now. <laughs> that, that is the truth. We're wrestling with. Well, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to join us. Great to chat with you, and we'll see you soon. Great. Thanks for having us. Really fun. And now it's time for my interview with Marcy Gallagher. Marcy is an environmental advocate with VPIRG, the Vermont Public Interest Research Group, focused on environmental health and zero waste policies. She is passionate about exploring the intersection between solid waste, toxic pollution, and climate change, and hopes to participate in shifting the burdens arising from these crises back onto the corporations that created them instead of on our communities. Hello, Marcy. Thanks for joining me. Hello, thanks for having me. So you are like our expert on the bottle bill, it feels like. So I want you to sort of set the stage. Um, So it's 1972 and Oregon and Vermont, they have enacted the nation's first bottle redemption law. It includes soft drinks, beer and liquor. And you purchase a can of soda at a retailer and you incur a five cent deposit. You consume the beverage and you return the empty container at the retailer for your five cents back. And the same for beer and for liquor, the rate's 15 cents. And initially, although it passed, it did receive some immediate attempts to repeal the law. But even by 1978, just a few years after being enacted in a publication created by Vermont Natural Resources Council, it appears that there was wide support for the bill. A Coca-Cola distributor from Barrie is quoted in the publication saying that he can't knock the bottle bill and that it's led to increased revenue. Um, And then Republican Governor Richard Snelling at the time applauded the law and credited it for reduced roadside litter. Of course, Green Up Day also was a product of the 70s in Vermont. Uh, Marcy, so neither you nor I were around in the 1970s, but why is this bill so critical and why was it at the time as well? Was it sort of a movement that it ushered in both Vermont and across the country? So sort of, yeah. Yeah, I... I like to think of the goals of the program in the 70s and today as um, really similar in a lot of ways, although there are some some key differences that kind of at its face look pretty different in that in the 70s, it was mainly intended as a, um, a litter reduction program. And today, it definitely still does that. It's definitely great at doing that. And that's super important. Um, but what today it does more of is actually ensuring um, an increased quality and an increased yield of recycling, um, which is not really what was considered back then in the 70s. The way that I think it is still the same intention is that we had these environmental programs back in the 70s. We had litter. Today we have these problems where, you know, recycling is not what many people would consider actually being recycled through a single stream system. And who's going to deal with it, who's going to pay for it, whose problem is it, it's the manufacturers, it's not consumers. And I think back then in the 70s and today, people do love this program. And I think that's really surprising to a lot of people because it it's an additional um, responsibility for consumers to bring back cans and bottles. But I think people really like participating in the recycling system and, and knowing that they are achieving greater recycling results and 
the intention of this program always was and you know still is for the redemption of a bottle to be as easy as the purchase of a bottle um, unfortunately that is not as much the case today and um, that's part of the reason why we really were pushing on h158 and increasing consumer convenience but overall we see these same themes of consumers love the bottle bill they want to recycle and achieve the best end life for the products that they're using and manufacturers to this day hate to pay for it and try to kill any expansion of this program yeah so you know fast forward to today you've sort of alluded you know one h158 um there's been multiple attempts over the last several biennials to modernize this bill. So what does that mean when I say modernize and and what sort of motivated that movement? And, um, you know, in your recollection, when was, when were the first attempts made to sort of modernize this bill? Yeah, I love this question because it, I feel like it gives me the opportunity to um, make an important distinction. So sometimes we talk about um, an update or expansion of the bottle bill. I use those words to refer more specifically to either increasing the types of containers that are covered by the program. So you mentioned it's um, soda, carbonated beverages, and liquor, but it's not water, it's not wine, it's not Gatorade and iced tea, et cetera. Um, I also use it to refer to increasing the handling fee, which is the fee that's paid by the beverage manufacturers to make the system work, um, or other more basic changes to the program that are just kind of intended to keep it functioning. So these efforts have been going on, as far as I know, for the last 20 plus years in Vermont, and are super important, H would, H-158 would have done that, but it also would have done much more, and that's where the word modernization comes in. So H-158 was, in my mind, mainly a policy proposal to modernize the bottle bill, and many of the elements in this bill were uh, born out of a more recent awareness and pushed towards more uh, what's called extended producer responsibility. So that's the idea that manufacturers, as I just mentioned, should be the ones responsible for the waste that they are producing and putting into our environment, not uh, the consumers that are kind of trapped within this single use system. Um, the shorthand for this for extended producer responsibility is EPR. I'm going to call it EPR because it is much less of a mouthful. So the bottle bill has always functioned as an EPR system in that the beverage manufacturers have paid for it, but they have no responsibility to actually ensure that it's functioning. So what H-158 would have done is that it would have doubled down on these kind of EPR provisions of the program uh, by modeling similar uh, deposit return models and programs from around the world, um, as well as modernized bottle bills in the U.S. So basically, it would bring our redemption program into the modern age in line with the EU, with Canada, et cetera, by making producers both finance, but also run the program and making it more functional for businesses and consumers. So there's that. And then I want to also answer the question about what motivated this. So I mentioned there have been similar efforts over the last couple of decades. So why is it moving now? And it's a pretty simple answer. So in 2018, the state discovered that one of our state's two single stream recycling centers, also called MRFs, um, this one, uh, which is owned by the Chittenden Solid Waste District, it's in Williston, it had been discovered to have been improperly dumping all of the glass that consumers, solid waste districts, uh, or waste haulers had been paying them to recycle without the knowledge of any of those stakeholders um, or the knowledge of our agency of natural resources. And they were dumping that glass over a period of five years in a few different locations on their property. Uh, so this was ultimately 18,000 tons of glass that was dumped. That's the equivalent of 36 million wine bottles. 
And so this discovery was really the impetus for bottle bill modernization to really gain momentum because over that same period, you know, 2013, 2018, virtually 100% of all glass that was redeemed through the bottle bill was recycled. And most of that was into new glass bottles that could be recycled over and over again. That's what we think is the true intention of recycling, turning something into something that can be recycled again. And the legislature decided that if we have this recycling program in the state that is far and away the most effective way to actually recycle products into new products, we one, want that system to be working as well as possible, and two, recycling as many containers as possible. Yeah, and so you mentioned that there's a several containers that um, hold beverages that are not included in the current bill. And that too is my understanding of part of this modernization. Yes. It would both expand the containers covered um, and it would do many other things. It would help redemption centers. It would add more redemption centers. um, It would uh, exempt retailers who have been really struggling to participate in this system. And it would create a producer responsibility organization Um, which is kind of a centralized nonprofit run by beverage producers. And there is uh, enforcement and all of these things that they have to do to make sure that the system is is working really well. I won't get into the nitty gritty, but um, suffice to say, the bill does a lot, um, including and beyond expanding the containers that are covered. And are there parts of the bill that had been introduced this biennium that include development of infrastructure that would be necessary to accommodate the increased volume with the new, uh, the new uh, redeemable bottles? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I would say, both pieces that are written explicitly into the bill and then um, pieces of infrastructure development that we just heard from stakeholders would happen should this bill pass. So the bill did add more redemption centers across the state. The specifics were um, at least three per county, um, one per designated downtown district, and one per municipality of 7,000 or more, which is really meant to capture uh, places like Montpelier that are unserved by redemption centers, but you know, with a high populace, population density where folks are less likely to have access to transportation. So that's a really massive equity concern. Um, but they're also within that um, producer responsibility organization requirements was also just looking at the state as a whole and where are there what we might call redemption deserts and also um, being required to explain how they would make sure those folks in redemption deserts would have access to redemption. Um, so that's a really key one. But then we also think about um, beyond the consumer side, where are these beverages actually going? How are they getting picked up? And that was also written into the bill. Um, we also heard that Tamra, which is the company that collects containers for bottle bill recycling, they testified that they are willing and prepared to upgrade their Vermont facilities should this pass. So I earlier I used the term attempt, and those who listen to the podcast or are tapped into the legislature know that just as of last month, the H-158 failed. It was unable to pass into law. Um, but with each attempt that there's been made, there's been further progress, I would say. And then this time around, it was only due to the governor's veto of the bill and the Senate's inability to successfully override that veto. Um, so walk us through the progress and the timeline that we've seen leading up to present day. Yeah, right. So I'll start before I was around, which is the first 20 years of the century when I was alive, but I was not working on the bottle bill. Um, So a bottle bill update 
never was able to pass a chamber. Um, just, I think around 10 years ago, a vote on updating the containers covered by the bottle bill got just eight votes in the Senate. VPIRG didn't give up because, you know, we have always felt that this is very, very important, but I'll say there was very little progress. Um, then in 2021, that's when things change again because of what I mentioned earlier, the, the Chittenden solid waste glass dumping scandal. So this initial bill that started moving, that was called H-175, it didn't actually have many of the modernization provisions that H-158 passed with. Um, it really just focused on that expansion and, and updating of the containers and raising the handling fee. Um, so this bill passed the House with 99 votes in 2021, uh, but it didn't get taken up by the Senate until the second year of that biennium. Um, in the middle there, in between the passing the House and the Senate, we commissioned a poll that found that 83% of Vermonters supported expanding the containers covered by the bottle bill as H-175 proposed to do, but we also wanted to find out for ourselves. So we hit the doors and the phones talking to as many Vermonters as we possibly could over the summer of 2021 um, and largely found the same results, if not even more support. Um, we were able to collect 10,000 petition signatures in support of H-175 and that was in kind of a, a still amidst a lot of um, COVID restrictions, so we weren't even able to get to as many folks as we would have wanted to. So just, you know, a tremendous amount of support. So once it was in the Senate in 2022, the bill got a total revamp in the Senate Natural Resources Committee after Senator Bray, the chair of that committee, put together a working group of really kind of diverse interests and stakeholders in this bill, the beverage industry, um, retail and grocers, DEC, et cetera. Um, and so that working group, which did include us, um, we're really talking about the problems of the current redemption programs that the original version of H-175 did not address. Um, and so that was where the beverage industry proposed adding that producer responsibility organization, um, that really kind of centralized group that would be administering and funding the system. Um, and we ultimately, you know, as a compromise, agreed to that um, while making sure that there were enforcement mechanisms to make sure that the industry was actually going to do what they said they were going to do, um, as well as uh, additional protections for consumers and small businesses. So that version of the bill is what passed the Senate in 2022, but died for a lack of time after the legislature adjourned, I think, just the day after it had passed the Senate and before House was able to give final approval. So we came back last year. We had lots of momentum from our success in the previous biennium. Uh, the version that passed the House was essentially the same as what had passed the Senate the previous spring, and that bill also passed the Senate. Uh, didn't officially pass the legislature until the veto override session last June, again, just because of a timing issue. And then, um, as you mentioned, the governor shortly thereafter did veto the bill, um, despite hearing from dozens of small businesses, redemption centers, um, and even more Vermonters that were in support of this bill. So what happened after that, I think, is what more people are currently caught up on. The override vote got 112 votes in the House with tripartisan support, but the Senate failed to get the votes needed to override the governor's veto and the bill died. Wow, what a timeline. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's a really roller coaster. Um, okay, so stakeholders, the beverage, you've mentioned beverage manufacturers, the retailers, the recycling facilities, environmental advocacy groups like VPIRG and Vermont Conservation Voters. Um, they're all engaged in this, but I assume there's some differing positions. You've mentioned Tamra's on board, um, but what what are we seeing on the opposite side? 
Yeah. So, the, you know, there's a lot of stakeholders and I think this question could take a long time to answer. So I'm going to try and be as uh, efficient as possible by saying that for the industry, um, like the waste industry and the beverage industry, the, their opposition is really going to come down to uh, their profit motives. For environmental advocacy groups, it's about, you know, what we believe the best environmental outcome is based on um, data and research. So yeah, that's reducing greenhouse gas emissions, reducing waste, energy usage, but also larger paradigm shifts. Um, like I mentioned, shifting the onus of dealing with the waste that's produced onto those who produce it and moving towards a reuse economy, things like that. Uh, then there are other stakeholders. There's retailers, redemption centers, even more than that. They're really looking out for their businesses and their customers. And I'll say that H-158 was a hard-won compromise bill. Um, it really did take all stakeholders into consideration. Uh, it moved through six committees um, in 2023 and six committees between 2021 and 2022. All of those House votes, um, you know, not everyone is ever going to love a single policy, but I think what came out of H-158 was a really fair bill. So why do you think our governor, a self-proclaimed moderate, a very popular governor, why would he go against the legislature and something that you stated 83% of Vermonters support? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think it's that uh, complicated of an answer. Our governor has a really strong track record of prioritizing industry and his decision making. And he has a longstanding history and relationship with John Casella, the uh, leader of Casella Waste. I'm not sure if you've seen the sticker on his race car or the Phil Scott sticker on their waste trucks. Um, but, you know, Casella is one of the biggest waste industry corporations in the country. And they were unsurprisingly opposing this policy. And Casella just released a statement, was it even just this week? Yes. And and what did that statement say? You know, I haven't read it yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am pretty familiar with how Casella feels uh, about the bottle bill, and um, we've been in dialogue with them. I think um, they've, they've made some pretty nasty moves in the past, and um, I think I'm all too familiar with what what this piece is going to say. So I have not gotten around to reading it yet. <laughs> so, so what, so Casella doesn't want this modernization to happen because that would affect their bottom line. Yeah. So Casella is um, mainly a landfill owning corporation. They also run one of the states. Well, they own one of the states two recycling single stream recycling facilities. They actually run both of them. Um, so when you think about it, you have a, a bottle of water um if you litter it and it gets you know washed away in the waterway that nothing happens but if you put it in the garbage casella makes money off of that if you put it in the single stream recycling bin casella makes money off of that if you redeem it casella does not make money off of that so they have no reason to um prioritize what the best end use of a material is when they are a publicly traded multi-billion dollar corporation who um, needs to maximize their profits. Well, glad to know that's where the governor's intentions are. Uh, 
So Vermont, once uh, we were once leading this whole movement in the nation with Oregon, and we've sort of fallen both in our efficacy as other states have introduced more comprehensive and progressive recycling and redemption programs. Um, I know our neighbor to the east, Maine, um, they've got a great program. What are some other examples of states doing it right? Yeah, I would say every state has its pros and cons. I think Oregon is is typically held up as one of the best bottle bill states because they have operated with a modernized bill. So they have the expanded containers, a 10 cent deposit and a producer run system as H-158 proposed to do. Um, they, they've had that for a really long time, longer than any other state. Um, they've also been able to use their redemption infrastructure to uh, run a local reuse program that they uh, the state partners with breweries and wineries on. I would really love to see Vermont do something like that. So I talk a lot about Oregon, but even Connecticut um, increased their deposit just last month. And um, as you mentioned, Maine has an expanded bill and they just passed another law modernizing their program. Um, And again, many of the ways that our bill would do would have done um, just this past December. So um, Vermont is one of the only bottle bill states. I think it's just Vermont and Massachusetts that has made no efforts toward modernization. So I think you can look to basically any other state and find some examples where they're doing it right and we're not. Uh, we received a question from a listener. Kara in Hyde Park wanted to know, when someone purchases a beverage and pays the deposit, but then recycles that container through the standard household recycling, say that you know is run by Casella, for example, um, or they discard the beverage some other way, you know, God forbid, by littering or... Um, besides, so they're not getting their deposit back. So where does that five cents or 15 cents if it's a liquor container, where does that money end up? Does the retainer or does the retailer hold on to that? Yeah, the deposit is always something really tricky for people to wrap their heads around. I actually would make a graphic and kind of walk through it when testifying in committee. And even still, it's it's kind of confusing. But basically, uh, for the first almost 50 years of this program, that deposit went back into the hands of the beverage industry. So if you bought a Coke and you didn't redeem your Coke, Coke would keep that five cents. That was a bad idea. So VPIRG worked pretty hard on a bill uh, back in 2017, 2018 that uh, proposed to send all the unclaimed deposits back to the state instead, and that passed. So as of 2018, all unclaimed deposits get remitted to Vermont and are all used uh, for clean water funding. There's actually a really great article from the Burlington Free Press that talks about all of the clean water funding projects that the bottle bill deposits have helped fund in the last five or so years. Um, You know, of course, redeeming your bottles has a really important environmental outcome, but I think listeners can rest assured that um, helping fund clean water is not bad either. So either way, it's, it's going to a good thing. So what's next then? I assume since it got within three votes this time around and progress has been made each biennium that there's this desire to take this back up in 2025. Uh, What's VPIRG and other advocacy groups plan for the future of the bottle bill? Yeah, well, I'll first say there's no official plan. Um, It's still early and we're still kind of regrouping and and reflecting on what's happened. But um, in this reflection, I think... I mentioned this earlier, but it's just so important to remember, you know, in in recent history, the bottle bill vote got eight votes in the Senate. And last spring, we got 19. And in my short history as an advocate, the messaging went from when I started at VPIRG, it's really pretty hard to get the bottle bill passed through a chamber to 
okay, this passed the legislature with tripartisan votes and massive support in both chambers. Um, so I think now is really not the time to give up, even though, of course, it's going to be a challenge as long as we have uh, our current governor. But at the end of the day, this policy that's supported by 83% of Vermonters and 75% of legislators isn't just going to go away no matter what I decide to do about it. So I'm not sure what form it's going to take, but I'm pretty confident that this bill will be back. Well, thank you so much for all your work on this bill. I know it seemed like such a such a heavy lift. And then, of course, I'm sh- sure so disappointing last month when we were unable to cross the finish line. But um, really so grateful for your work on this and, and all your knowledge and expertise. It's um, I'm sure you've had a hand in encouraging that tripartisan support for sure. Yeah, well, thank you for continuing to bring light to the issue. It, it was definitely disappointing on so many levels and and heartbreaking especially for god i've i've just talked to so many redemption centers in my time doing this work and and they really really need this to keep going so it's disheartening but i think what we can do at this point is just keep the conversation going um this isn't dead we are closer than ever and we've got to make it happen for vermonters and for our businesses absolutely Well, the VNRC publication entitled Bottles and Cans, the story of the Vermont Deposit Law is available. Um, I will link to that and as well as some other resources that Marcy's left me with on our website. And Marcy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I want to thank our guests, Marcy Gallagher, Representative Julia Andrews, and of course, Lauren Hurl for assisting me. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on social media on X. We are at Vote Green VT, YouTube and Instagram at VT Conservation Voters, and find us on Facebook as well. You can subscribe to our emails, see our legislative environmental scorecard, and learn more about our work and policies by visiting VermontConservationVoters.org. Have an idea for a story or want to provide feedback, just email me at jmarsh at vermontconservationvoters.org. Next week, we will be back with an episode that explores the roles of the legislative chiefs of staff. Until then, thanks for listening.